Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. While the science of humans' impact on climate change is now clear, there are still a lot of skeptics out there. One group of scientists was tasked with evaluating concerns of climate skeptics to disprove climate warming. But once they dug into and processed the data, their work only confirmed the warming. We're talking with Dr. Robert Roday, lead scientist at Berkeley Earth, about the work he and his organization have been doing to further the science of climate change. To create accurate assessments and projections of our climate requires scientists to process a lot of data, and Robert is one of the key people helping to do that. We'll talk about how Berkeley Earth is working to educate people about climate change and how they hope to build partnerships with environmental and industry groups around the world. Robert, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Great to be here. So there's a question I ask every guest, and you told me you hadn't heard the podcast before, so you're going to be caught blindsided by this, but I always ask, how'd you become a weather geek, or in this case, a climate geek? (laughs) Uh, Well, I've actually always been interested in climate, going back to high school, I guess. Uh, You know, even way back then, you know, I'm not quite that old, but I'm old enough that it's been a while. they were still talking about climate change, you know, the 1990, uh, you know, first IPCC report and some of the relatively early discussions. And, you know, I thought it was an important issue and I was concerned and I kept my eye on it for a long time. But I had this long divergence where I went and did a physics PhD and I studied a variety of the other things. And I eventually came back to climate science as one of the most important things I could spend my time on. And so let me give you a little background on Dr. Rode. He has He's lead scientist at Berkeley Earth. He has a PhD in theoretical physics from U- University of Cal Berkeley. So clearly someone that knows his stuff. Uh, so I really should have asked how he became a physics geek. I mean, as a kid, were you really <laughs> into physics and experimentation and that stuff? Oh, like, for sure. When, yeah. I, when I was little, you know, I read books about Einstein and, you know, about relativity and these things. It was, it's always fascinating because you can get this sort of deep understanding of how the world works, how things are connected, what are the mechanisms. And I always love to understand that kind of thing. And, and my awesome research team, our, our producers, our, our Weather Geeks producers, they, they dig deep on our guests. Uh, so they tell me that your early work involved ice core data and studying the presence of microbial life in glacial ice. Tell us what that was about and why it's important. Uh, yeah, so my PhD work, uh, I built the uh, I, I built a fluorescent spectrometer to measure dust and microbial life in ice cores. Uh, so we would scan you know chunks of ice that have been collected from Greenland or Antarctica and identify individual microbes uh, with this laser setup we had. And you know, we weren't really trying to tell what kind of microbe it was, but we were trying to tell how common they were. 
And that tells us something about microbial activity and deposition uh, and what's really going on in the ice. And there were some interesting things there. Uh, for example, you know, you think of these ice cores as very static, dead things, you know, very stable. But if you get down to the bottom, there actually are microbial communities that live near the base of the ice and can, you know, consume small organic molecules and produce things into the ice and, you know, create confounding artifacts. Uh, but yeah, I, I worked on that for a number of years, including working at the ice core lab in a dark room so I could use my laser setup. Uh, and I eventually decided that I no longer wanted to work in a cold, dark place all the time. <laughs> uh, so I, I switched to working more on climate work with uh, computers rather than you know, lasers. Well, but just to, just to let the Weather Geeks listeners know, we're, you're hearing Dr. Rode talk about uh, ice cores, which are a class of what we call proxy climate data sets. There are ways that we can, you often hear people say, well, how do you know what the climate was 100,000 years ago or perhaps 100,000 uh, years ago? We have various proxy records that we use, like ice cores, tree rings, coral. Uh, there are all kinds of records trapped in uh, these things that we can do very sophisticated analysis ranging from isotopic analysis and so forth. So uh, I want, want the listeners to know that um, when climate scientists are talking about past climates, they're not just sort of waving their hands. Uh, these proxy data sets have proven to be quite valuable. If you think back to the Day After Tomorrow movie, which many of us have seen, uh, that movie starts with scientists down, I believe, in Antarctica and they're drilling for ice cores. So uh, thank you for bringing that up. I, I, I wanna shift the discussion now to Berkeley Earth. Now, I remember this when this all came about, and I, I want you to tell us the history of it because I don't remember the details, but I do remember that there was a group that, you know, maybe started off, and I don't know if the word skeptical or denialist or contrarian, but there was a group that was somewhat doubtful of some of the science that was coming out on global warming or climate change uh, and stood up this organization in some fashion, but I don't know the details. So just fill in the gaps and the origins of Berkeley yeah. Earth and what role climate skeptics played in shaping it? So if you think back about a decade ago, uh, there was an event that you know, became known as Climate Gate, when there was this release of emails from uh, the UK uh, Met Office and related organizations that some people say showed evidence of manipulation of the climate data uh, and you know, raised a number of skeptics to be very concerned that this data set had been manipulated, it might not be reliable. Uh, and that sort of was the impetus for Berkeley Earth. Uh, basically, a number of people who, had, who looked at this skeptical concerns and took them seriously said, we need to relook at this. We need to do uh, you know, a detailed take, a fresh take, make sure that the uncertainties are right, that the analysis is right, that there's not any fu you know, funny business going on because this is so important to what we're thinking about the climate. Uh, so that was sort of the motivation. And then uh, Rich Muller, uh, you know, who's a Berkeley physics professor, uh, helped organize a group of us, uh, you know, myself included and you know, several other Berkeley faculty uh, to take a fresh look at the climate data at that time uh, and build a new analysis using you know, somewhat different methods, more data, trying to address as many of the concerns of the climate skeptics had 
uh, as possible. Uh, you know, we did want to make sure we weren't selecting, you know, biasing our data sample. We wanted to make sure we had, you know, if there were biases from urban heat islands or something like that, that we took it into consideration. Uh, so there was a, that's where it began. And it's, you know, has the unique distinction as far as I'm aware of having raised money from both the Gates Foundation and the Koch brothers to do a climate project. <laughs> oh, wow. That, that is very unique. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, I think that's really interesting positioning, though, because it clearly identifies that someone saw you as an honest broker. Yeah, yeah, you know, it was it was a you know a legitimate concern that there was you know something wrong, uh, and we didn't know what the answer would be going in. So you know, we go, when we get started out, you know, we could have concluded that you know everything is fine, or we could have concluded there was some serious error. We were just going to follow the data to see where it led. Yeah, we're talking with Dr. Robert Roday from Berkeley Earth. Fascinating discussion. And that was some fascinating history he just gave. Let me read something from your website that says, global warming is the defining environmental challenge of our time. The need for quality, unbiased scientific information about global warming could not be more urgent. Yet there are few sources of historic global temperature records, the foundation underlying all global warming analysis. I think those are pretty powerful statements. Um, what was your own personal perspective coming in? But you, or did you really try to come into this very sort of, sort of un, un, unfettered or unbiased in any way? Uh, I mean, I I would say that I did want to very much follow the data and understand what the concerns were of the skeptics. You know, so at the time I read, you know, a number of the skeptical commentaries. You know, even some of the blogs and things like this. Uh, Before you go forward, let me just emphasize, because that's a key point, you read some of the skeptic commentary and blogs, but I think the consensus literature at that time was still sort of all on the sort of page of global warming happening, climate change. There certainly are papers from sort of a contrarian or skeptic, or I don't want to say contrarian, but from a skeptic's basis in the peer-reviewed literature, but would you agree that much of what you were reading at that time was in the gray literature? Uh, yeah, I would agree that a lot of it was not peer-reviewed literature. It was, you know, blog comments and other things. And, you know, I also read, you know, a lot of the peer-reviewed literature because I needed to understand what people were doing and how the existing algorithms were put together, what are the concerns, what are the known biases and issues. And, you know, also think about how we can address some of these things more thoroughly. But like I said, I also wanted to understand what were, you know, the skeptical concerns that were coming from the, you know, the more intellectual, the oriented skeptics, the people who had cogent arguments about their concerns uh, and try and address some of them in the hopes that at the end of the day, we want to be able to move the argument forward. Uh, you know, and I think Berkeley Earth has contributed to that. You know, yeah. Ultimately, we found that the analysis that our groups have done was pretty good that you know the you know their understanding of global warming you know seems to be pretty accurate even when we improve the statistical methods we add a bunch more data we address some of these holes in the interpolation and urban heat island concerns and you still get an answer which is very close to what the other groups have done in the past and, and that's comforting and I think what you illustrate or talk about is something that Naomi Oreskes has talked about in, in her book or in some of her writings in the past of consilience, this idea of approaching 
uh, problems from different perspectives, different methodology, different data sources, but still arriving at similar conclusions. And that's a strength of science. Uh, you, you often hear people talk about consensus, but I also like to talk about consilience. And I think your group, Berkeley Earth, uh, really embodies this idea of approaching things from a different perspective. Uh, you know, we all might go to the grocery store from a different route, but we all get to the same place. And I think that's kind of what you did. Was there a, uh, an aha moment for you or wow, I didn't expect that moment as you, as you, you, I mean, you led the development of Berkeley's earth temperature analysis, I believe, and reconstruction yes. earth historical climate. Uh, along the way, were there any aha moments for you? Hmm. Uh, so, you know, an aha moment. Uh, you know, there's not, I don't think there was a moment where it just sort of all gelled together for me, but there were a number of, you know, stepping stones along the way, you know, trying to, you know, realize, for example, the, you know, the earth is a big place, but, you know, weather domains are still somewhat large. There's, you know, a weather system is not rating on one person, it's rating on cities and states. And that's one of those things that allows you to average this sparse temperature network and still get a good idea of what's going on, because you don't have to have a temperature measurement everywhere. And there's a number of understandings like that that come along the way. You know, understanding how you can, you know, identify biases from changing in metrics in urban heat islands by comparing stations rural versus urban, or comparing stations in different environments. And, you know, there's quite a number of figuring things out as we went, make sure, you know, we understood what are, what's really going on. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Dr. Robert Roday about Berkeley Earth, a very fascinating organization. And by the way, if you do not follow Dr. Roday on Twitter. Uh, I highly urge that. He's a really interesting follow. He's someone that I follow and rely on and uh, keep in my favorites list on climate because he, he puts out some really informa good information. And, and I want to shift a little bit because one of the things that I've, I've really kind of identified you with in more contemporary times is the the what you're doing to educate the public, policymakers, and so forth about climate change. Uh, you've created a lot of visualizations. You talk passionately about this. One of the things that really is of interest to me is some analysis that you've been doing on sort of climate chi uh, scientists. Uh, and their presence in social media, how often they're tapped by policymakers and so forth. Tell us how all of that got started. Yeah, so I will confess, I like Twitter. <laughs> I, I do it. too, actually. I, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's got its dark corners and annoying yeah. factors, but I think it's a net good. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a way to talk to people. And in particular, unlike a lot of channels, it could be interactive. You could, you know, talk to, you say something and people talk back to you and you could start a conversation. 
And that's really useful if you're trying to educate people on a topic such as climate science. Uh, now you asked the question about how I looked at the climate sciences networks and these things. So I was actually set out to understand for myself better who are the climate scientists, what is this community on Twitter like? Uh, so I took some time to you know, write simple scripts to say, you know, identify the scientists and who, how many followers they had and who follows who, and sort of get into the network structure of it. Uh, and also do things like you know, understand you know, what journalists are following climate scientists, so what politicians. And you know it, it gets informative, uh, you know, because unlike most broadcast media, you know, there's an opportunity to see who and what people are interested in by looking at who they're following. So, for example, you can find you know which politicians are following climate, you know, major climate scientists, and that's a really strong indicator that those are politicians that think climate science is an important issue. Uh, you know, and it helps to understand this broader community in a little bit. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's <laughs> so what? So what are I mean? Who who are I mean? And again, I I know that I've appeared in some of your your analysis and so forth. So I will acknowledge that right off the bat. But I'm sort of low on the totem pole compared to some people you often talk about. Really, I mean, I guess not low, but um, who are some of the top climate scientists that? People are following, particularly policymakers, because I, I know, for example, um, I testified before the House Science Committee in 2019, and one of the staffers explicitly mentioned, you know, I follow you all the time on Twitter, and some of the, I, we thought you'd be someone good to testify. So I know firsthand that you know our science through social media, and not just through scientific journals, is reaching people. But who are some of the people you find that people go to, and and, and why are they effective? Yeah. So you know. There, you know, some of the top scientists on Twitter are people like Catherine Hayhoe, who is a you know, climate scientist out of Texas, who has made a, a career of talking in particular to the, uh, the religious communities, you know, and reaching out, uh, as well as doing exceptionally, uh, you know, useful climate science. Uh, you know, there's also people like Michael Mann, who is a much more polarizing figure than, say, Catherine Hayhoe, uh, speaks to a somewhat different community. Uh, but there's also, a, you know, there's a number of people, uh, Peter Gleike, um, uh, let's see, uh, Kim Cobb, and, you know, I, I, I'm my mouth forgetting the list that I have. Yeah, head just go moment. to his Twitter site. What's your Twitter? Because I know you have a lot of information on your Twitter where you can find some of your analysis. Yeah, so my Twitter handle is uh, R A Rody, so R A R O H D E. Yeah, yeah, and I, he's got a lot of information there. I, I just find it interesting because you 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 actually have kind of have a scientific methodology for for this type yeah. of analysis. So this is not just someone sort of poking around and saying, "Oh, he follows him." There's a real. I mean, I'm curious. Have have you published or thought about publishing this? Uh, I haven't. Uh, you know, it's. I occasionally think, you know, maybe this is something worth writing up, but it's sort of, you know, the people who are most interested in it are on Twitter. So it's sort of speaking, you know, writing it up for that community is where I, I focus mostly. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, I think it's interesting though. I, I actually just from a putting on my scientist hat and professor hat at UG, I, I do think there's some scholars scholarly interest there in some of the sort of geoscience education or more public outreach type journals. So I, I would I would encourage you because I think what you're doing is valuable, but I also think it's rigorous. I think it's an, it's rigorous enough that it could be published. Yeah, yeah. I mean, anyway, go ahead. That, that's something I was very uh, very much wanted to be rigorous at understanding who are. You know, for example, who are the most followed, who are the most mutually followed, who this, you know, the politicians listen to. So when I constructed these various lists, I wanted it to be rigorous, uh, in part because I wanted to make sure I wasn't missing people, you know, missing any of the diversity. I wanted to, you know, you don't want to, you know, just come up with a list of old white professors. You know, you want to actually know what is this community in a sort of objective way? So that's, that's interesting because I, I recently saw, I think it was a few months back, a list of some magazine or some organization put out of the top whatever 100 climate scientists. And I think it did lack diversity. I think it did lack not only just racial diversity, but age diversity and discipline yeah. diversity. It was, I think it was, and I, I dug into it a little bit because I'm a scientist too, and I was curious about what their criteria are. And it's things like cited work, citations, published works, and so forth. And so that is going to inherently bias towards people that have been in the academic environment a bit longer and maybe have a longer paper trail. When I know for a fact there are people like Kim Cobb uh, and Ayana Elizabeth Johnson who probably weren't on that list, but are highly impactful climate scientists today. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. There's a lot of, you know, when you look at scientific metrics, like the, the list, you know, I believe I know the list you're referring to, uh, you know, they often say, look at how many citations you've accumulated over a career. And, you know, someone who's been in the business 50 years rates highly, but that's not necessarily the person who's being the most impactful at the moment. Uh, and we, as a scientific community, really need metrics that figure out who is the impactful person now, not just in the past. And I think Twitter is a, you know, a very distinctive platform, but it is a very communications-oriented platform. And for people who want to be in the business of communicating science, it, you know, you can identify people, including people who are relatively young, who have nonetheless developed, uh, you know, built a following of, uh, you know, a popular public uh, through good communication and information. Well, I know that's something that's big and important for me. I mean, I, I think we have to be scientists that extend beyond the ivory tower. Uh, otherwise, people will fill gaps that we leave behind if we aren't there. And so, I, you know, a big part of my scholarship is the publishing and doing the peer-reviewed science and all of those things. I've got all those metrics, but it's important to engage. And so I, I completely agree with you on, on Twitter. I think it's a net good if you can filter through all the chaff. Uh, one quick question about your list, though. Do, do any people uh, sort of appear high on your list that I don't want to say you're skeptic or contrarian, but sort of perhaps lean further away from the Michael Manns and Catherine Hayhoe's and Marshall Shepherds of the world in terms of how we see climate change. Uh, so, you know, I, I know sort of what you're asking. Right. Uh, you know, and they're on the list I've, the list I've constructed, there aren't really any people who are far outside the mainstream. 
there are certainly people who look at a little bit differently in terms of emphasis. There's a great deal of uh, diversity in how people see the future risk, for example. There are people on the science, climate science community who will talk about climate, uh, you know, climate change as if it is basically the end of the world. Uh, I'm not really one of those. I, I don't think it is the end of the world. Uh, but you know, and there are also people who look at it as if it is not a big deal. And I don't agree with that either. You know, cli you know climate change is going to be very impactful to humanity during the next you know, 100 years, and it will harm a lot of people. You know, I certainly believe it is a survivable event, but I think it will be costly and it will be harmful and we need to be dealing with it as a serious issue. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I'm talking with Dr. Robert Rohde, someone that I've really wanted to have on the Weather Geeks podcast for some time. So I'm glad we were able to get him. Shout out to Josh Vexler uh, with the Weather Geeks production as well. Uh, many of the people that you hear, many of the production efforts going on in real time uh, are, are happening because of Josh Vexler. And I, I like to, from time to time, uh, give shout outs to some of the team you don't hear on the podcast. There's a really extraordinary team and they're all meteorologists and have meteorology backgrounds too involved with this podcast. Now you've also performed analysis on air quality. Um, what, what have you done in that role and what have you learned about air pollution and its impact on human health? So Berkeley Earth got into thinking about air quality because it's very closely linked to fossil fuels. You know, most of the air quality issues we talked about are related to combustion of fossil fuels, coal, you know, automobiles, things like this. Uh, so there's a very there's a lot of leverage there. If you want to reduce air pollution, you also often want to reduce fossil fuels. So they're very linked issues. Uh, we were looking a lot at what was going on in Asia, uh, particularly China initially, but also sometimes Korea, Japan, uh, these other environments. And there is a, you know, there is enough air pollution being produced in places like China to contribute to be a contributing factor in millions of deaths each year. You know, and what happens is that these fine particulates get into your lungs, they move into your bloodstream, and they make you at higher risk for things like stroke and heart attacks and cancer. And it's a real concern that we need to be reducing this air pollution and you know, understanding it better. Yeah, and I think that's really important in this COVID era and the era where we're seeing wildfires degrade air quality here in the United States and so forth, uh, this, this linkage with air quality. And, you know, I've always wondered, you know, when you hear some of the arguments against climate change or, or for mitigation, and I've always wondered how, even if you don't believe a lick about the whole anthropogenic impacts of uh, greenhouse gases on our warming climate, 
what's bad about cleaning the air? I mean, I, I just have never understood the, the logic of being averse to that, if that's a side effect of the global warming <laughs> strategy and mitigation. So I, I actually was not quite as familiar with some of this work, which leads me to my next question. I mean, what's next for Berkeley? I mean, you talked about air quality, but what are some of the sort of next things that your organization is really focused on? Uh, yeah, so in the short term, uh, we are hoping to make a number of improvements on our climate side. Uh, we are actually, right now, we already have what is the highest resolution global temperature field at one degree. Uh, we are hoping to push that resolution significantly to provide climate historical climate data that is downscaled to understanding of the city and the state region more, you know, more precisely. So there's greater use and utility to people who are looking at the local and regional effects. Uh, we're also hoping to have a communication effort that similarly looks at those local and regional effects going forward. Uh, so yeah, I wanted to mention something about this sort of one degree and downscaling for our listeners. So, you know, many of the climate data and climate models are outputting information at large, what we call in meteorology and climate spatial resolution. So you might have data every one degree of latitude or so, or, or so forth. So that's about 111 kilometers in size. So you basically have a box about 111 kilometers. But if you're trying to give policymakers information what's on what's happening in Fulton County, which is the county that houses Atlanta, Georgia. Well, that county is much smaller than that 111 by 111 grid box that we have climate models. So uh, people like Dr. Rodet and others are thinking about and mentioning these downscaling techniques and they're statistical or dynamical. And so a lot of mathematics involved to try to get that information down to usable scales of communities and census tracts and counties and so forth. Have you found that to be a, a tough problem? Uh, so I, I don't think, you know, th there's different degrees of tough. So it is a computationally intensive problem, you know, to mo you know, move the data to a small scale and understand the structure of it uh, requires a lot of computing power. It, you know, I would not say it is a conceptually tough thing. Like we understand what needs to be done but you know, there, and there's a number of details and processes that have to go into it, but also a lot of computational power has to be devoted to it if you want to get it at that small scale where people live. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think it's one of the big, new, big frontiers still left and I'm glad to see your group tackling. Last sort of substantive question for you, and it's a big one, but I consider you an expert or I consider you an ear that Congress might or call on to testify. Uh, before them and so forth, or the president might call and say, What's, what, what do you think? So, I mean, if you had sort of a magic one and you, and you I've already heard sort of where you are on sort of cl the climate urgency. I mean, you don't think it's the end of the world, but you think it's a clear problem for sure. What's the next great sort of thing that we need either from a scientific perspective or a policy perspective? In other words, if you could put all your eggs in one basket, I know we need many baskets, but if you could put all your eggs in one policy basket recommendation or one science basket recommendation, what would it be at this time? 
Well, you, you don't ask small questions. I don't. That's <laughs> I, I love I love to challenge our guests, and uh, we have really awesome experts. And again, there's no right or wrong yeah. answer. I'm just kind of curious what 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 sort of, so you think we need right yeah. now. So, I would say that we know, and in fact, have known for a number of years, the basic outline of what we need to do. The, the science is clear that we need to be reducing fossil fuel emissions as quickly as is practical, while also preserving human life and well-being and those sorts of things. So we really need to be aligning our policies with that goal. So that means doing things like ending the development of new oil and gas sites and new coal mines. That means you know, fostering the adoption of electric vehicles, uh, do putting processes that make it easier for people to switch away from natural gas in their homes, support for people who will be losing their jobs if we move away from fossil fuels. So it's, it's a whole basket of things in support of moving away from fossil fuels and you know, as quickly as we can without harming people in the process. Yeah, and I think that's those are absolutely spot on. And I, I, you know, I try to challenge colleagues on this and myself as well, because one of the things that I've personally been told when I go into the halls of Congress or so forth is, well, okay, we get it. Things are happening. The hurricanes are more dense likely or will be. There's drought. What do we do now? I mean, then how do we do it in a way sort of big picture? So I think you know, I, I really appreciate that you had some very sort of thoughtful perspectives on this. And it's like, yeah, I think we know that we need to sort of reduce CO2 emissions, but I thought you had some very specific examples there. And I, I really resonate, Nate, and appreciate this idea of uh, sort of support for those that may, as we transition to a new economy, I mean, there are real kitchen table lives and issues yes. that will be changed. And we have to think carefully about that. I mean, you know, we went through one industrial revolution in the 1850s that probably bore out this problem somewhat. Now we're probably going to go through another one and there'll be different opportunities. They'll, they'll, people would need to be retrained and, uh, and so forth. But I, you know, we've done it before we can do it again. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Rody, where can people find out more about Berkeley earth or you on social media or the web? Uh, yeah. So Berkeley earth has a website, berkeleyearth.org which is the home for all of our data sets and you know, a lot of our information. Uh, we also are quite active on Twitter. There's both a at Berkeley Earth uh, domain and of course myself uh, at R-A Rohde, R-A-R-O-H-D-E. Uh, and those are probably the main portals. Uh, if you go to our website, you can sign up for a periodic newsletter with uh, you know, mostly focused on what is the most recent climate information, you know, what's the state of warming and temperature across the earth and these sorts of things. Uh, one, quick, one quick question before I let you go. Are, are, is Berkeley Earth involved in either the IPCC or the National Climate Assessment Reports at all? Uh, so Berkeley Earth uh, does not have a formal role. Uh, individuals associated with Berkeley Earth uh, have interaction with it. Uh, so, for example, uh, Zeke Hausfather, who is a, one of the people on the Berkeley Earth team, uh, is also positioned to be uh, one of the chapter authors on the National Climate Assessment. Uh, yeah, I was just curious about that because, again, I think you are, you are, your team are players on the landscape now. And I, I know many of us get called about those types of things. Those are key reports issued by the UN organizations, WMO, or uh, here nationally. Uh, there is... Uh, 
federal law that mandates that the U.S. assess its climate uh, every four or so years, and that's the National Climate Assessment. And a new one is coming out, I think, sometime next year. Uh, Dr. Rode, thank you so much for joining us. Before we get out of here, though, I've got to do what I do at every podcast in. It's time for our Geek of the Week. We like to highlight a scientist superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Chris Bailey. Chris is the chief meteorologist at WKYT in Kentucky. He's most well-known for his blog, which offers an in-depth look at forecasts, whether it's it's snowstorms, severe weather, or drastic temperature swings. And by the way, his favorite is snowstorms. His blog helps teach his readers about the weather patterns and to inform them of what's coming and even inspires the person who nominated him to learn more about winter weather as a high schooler. Thank you for always going the extra mile, Chris, and thank you to whoever nominated him as well. Thank you. To follow along with Chris, check him out at Kentucky Weather on Twitter. And if you know someone is worthy of being a geek of the week like Chris, be sure to check out our social media pages. Dr. Rode, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you. And to all of you that listen, uh, thank you again, and uh, we'll see you next time on Weather Geeks.